You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Well, uh, if you're anything like my wife, you were probably just really bored after watching that video. Uh, but not me. Uh, my wife has no interest in space and stars and planets and all of that, but I love it. And I love watching that video where, you, you know, we know how big the Earth is, how long it might take to fly around it. And then our Earth is tiny compared to our Sun. But our sun is tiny compared to some of those massive stars that we've discovered out there in space. And of course, they're tiny compared to the galaxies and the universe as a whole. It just blows my mind that just the epic scale of it. It's so hard. It's like trying to understand what infinity is. Uh, and for me, as a Christian, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is another one of those things that just amazes me and blows my mind, and I, it's like trying to grasp infinity. It, it kind of, my mind almost packs it in, uh, especially when I consider that the God who is Trinity is the God who made all those stars and those planets and those galaxies in the universe. He is surely greater than all of those. Now, uh, this uh, series of three talks, of course, we're going to be thinking about the Trinity over the next few weeks. And I want to be very upfront with you right away and say that the word Trinity does not appear in our Bibles. If you did a search of your Bible text, you will not find that word. Uh, that shouldn't alarm you. We often use words that aren't in the Bible to try and capture the Bible's truth. And this word, Trinity, is a term that Christians use to try to capture what the Bible teaches us about God. It's a shorthand, of way, a shorthand way of saying three persons eternally existing as one God, right? A tri-unity, a trinity. And you need to know that God is not a simple being. He is a complex, relational being. And I don't think it should surprise us too much that God is complex because, well, after all, he is God, isn't he? Now, where did the idea of the trinity come from? Uh, it was not invented hundreds of years after Jesus by some church council or some uh, Christian leader somewhere. Anyone who tries to tell you that doesn't know what they're talking about. The reason we believe in a Trinity is because of Jesus himself. Uh, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and focus on Jesus, I think you will come to the conclusion that Jesus is God as you listen to his words, as you watch his actions. And yet... Jesus often spoke about his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit, and it's clear that he was speaking of divine persons other than himself. And yet Jesus, as every Jew would in the first century and even today, he would agree, there is only one God. Now, I'm hoping that we're going to make some real progress in our understanding of what God is like in the next three weeks, and actually what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. But before we get right into Bible verses and, and what we know, uh, our first point is this. How important is this teaching? How important is this teaching? 
uh, in the focus ministry, we spent three weeks in our small groups uh, reading through John's Gospel, chapters 13 to 17, which is really the last teaching that Jesus gives his disciples before he's arrested and killed. It happens between the Last Supper and when Jesus uh, washes the disciples' feet and his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, uh, a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson says this, When his disciples were about to have their world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that surely must be it. So how important is this doctrine? I mean, if if someone doesn't believe that God is Trinity, uh, can they still be a Christian? Is it that kind of level? I would say this. Uh, Someone can be a Christian if they are ignorant of this doctrine or if they have a very superficial understanding. Maybe they're a very young Christian and they just haven't heard much about it, haven't done much reading. Uh, That would be fine. But I don't think somebody can be a Christian if they have read their Bible and they have researched and listened to what all the, you know, all the Christians and all the generations beforehand say about believing in the Trinity, if they know all that and reject this doctrine and say, no, that can't be true, I won't accept it, I don't think they're a Christian anymore. Because at that point, they are worshipping a different God. Even so, I suspect for most of us, uh, we believe in the Trinity, uh, we we're, we're, we're Christians and we've heard about it. We go, yes, uh, I accept that that is true, uh, but it might not be something we've done a lot of thinking about. I don't know about you, but perhaps when you go out and do walk up and you're sharing uh, with someone who is not yet a Christian about the faith and the topic starts to drift towards the topic of the Trinity, do you perhaps feel in yourself a feeling of, uh, oh, gee, I hope we don't have to just talk about the Trinity. Maybe we find this doctrine a little bit embarrassing. It's like at the back of our bedroom, hidden away in the cupboard. It is there. We know it's true, but we don't particularly want to bring it out and let people see it. Uh, Maybe we're embarrassed by it. Maybe we we just don't know what to say. We we don't have a good way of explaining it. And so as we share our faith with someone else, we might think to ourselves, look, I'll just let them become a Christian first, and then they can learn about the whole Trinity thing later. If that's you, that's totally understandable, but I think it's a shame. And my job over the next few weeks is to convince you that this doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, is not an embarrassing doctrine that should be hidden away, but it is a wonderful, beautiful doctrine. And so with that in mind, second point, what do we know for sure? Up on the screen, on the slides, uh, you'll see uh, this diagram of a triangle. Uh, I'm not trying to illustrate the Trinity. This is not a picture of the Trinity. Uh, I don't think there are good illustrations of the Trinity. What this triangle is supposed to show are three truths that are clearly taught in the Bible. I don't think there's any doubt about these three truths. And so as Christians, we need to hold on to each of these three truths. To do anything less is to be unbiblical. And the real reason why Christians have always believed that God is Trinity is because this is what the Bible clearly teaches, because of these three sides of the triangle. Now I'm going to look at this Quickly, I'm just going to give you one verse for each of the statements that I'm going to give you. Uh, That's not because I couldn't give you more. I could. There's heaps and there's a few more on the slides or on the handout. And you can do research in your own time. Uh, So let's get to it. The first thing, the first side of the triangle is this truth. There is one God. There is one God. Every Jewish person and Jesus himself 
And all the early Christians, who were, of course, Jewish as well, uh, knew that there was only one God. This is clearly taught in the Bible. Uh, here's one place where it's taught in Isaiah chapter 45 from verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Okay. Uh, the second side of the triangle says that the three persons are fully God. That is, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So first of all, the Father is God. You see this idea in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Actually, we see all three persons mentioned in that verse, but as far as it goes where it says God, who is God? God is the glorious Father. So the Father is God, but also the Son is God. There's a very strong verse in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, where we read, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is also God. So up on the screen is Acts chapter 5 from verse 3. You may remember this story. Uh, there's a, a young couple in uh, the church. Uh, their name are Ananias and Sapphira. They have recently sold some property and they could do whatever they wanted to do with that money. Uh, they decided to keep some and give other amount to the church, which is fine. The only problem is they lied about it and that they said that they had given the whole amount to the church. Verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And afterwards it was sold. Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So at the start of that passage, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. At the end of the passage, you have lied to God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And I really want to drill down here and make this clear. When we say each of these persons, these three persons, is God, we mean they are the full God. So to try and make that clear, imagine you had a set of balanced scales. And imagine that these scales weigh Godness. If you put one of the persons on one side of the scale, let's say it's the Holy Spirit, and on the other side of the scale, if you put the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of the three persons, those scales would balance. They would balance. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is not a part of God. He's not one third of God. He is the God of the Bible. He is Yahweh. And so is the Son. And so is the Father. So that's our second side of the triangle. The three persons are each fully God. The third and final side of the triangle says that the three persons are distinct. They're distinct from one another. That is, the Father is not the same person as the Son. The Son is not the same person as the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> They're distinct. Uh, and so to think about this, you, you might think about Clark Kent and Superman, right? Clark Kent and Superman in the, in the superhero stories, uh, they appear like they're different people. Sometimes someone might, might meet Clark Kent, sometimes they meet Superman, but they would never walk into a room and meet both at the same time because actually we as the readers know they're the same person. 
They may wear different outfits and have different mannerisms, but that's just an illusion. They're actually the same person, so you can't meet them both together. This is different to the three persons of the Trinity. The three persons of the Trinity are not all the same person wearing different masks and putting on some different mannerisms. They are distinct persons. You could walk into a room, if you like, and meet the three of them, and you actually see in the Bible the three of them interacting with one another, something that Clark Kent and Superman could never do. So here's an example, Matthew chapter 3 from verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So you see the three persons there and actually interacting with one another, aren't they? God the Father is speaking from heaven about his Son. He is sending down his Holy Spirit to the Son, Jesus, who has just been coming up out of the water, having been baptised. So that's our third side of the triangle. The persons are eternal, they're distinct, they can relate to one another. And just before we leave this section of various verses, I'll just finish with one Trinitarian verse. There are some lovely verses in Scripture which just put the three persons on a a level playing field and without embarrassment mention the three of them all together. So a classic example would be from the Great Commission, which was read for us, Matthew chapter 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Notice the singular, not names. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. These three truths on the triangle are equally foundational, right? We need to hold on to all three at the same time as Christians. It's not as though we begin with the idea that there's one God, and then later on we add on the other statements. And we certainly mustn't think kind of chronologically that way back in the beginning, God was just God the Father, and then at some point later in history, the Son and the Spirit appeared from somewhere. That's not true. God is and has always will be, always has been and always will be three persons in one God. He is always the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons in loving relationship with one another for all eternity. They have enjoyed and loved and honoured one another forever and ever and ever. And it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful doctrine. Okay. Take a deep breath. You're doing well. This is tough, tough doctrine, tough teaching, but I think wonderful teaching. So stay with it. You might be sitting there going, okay, Dan, I I, I see the triangle. I see the verses from the Bible. I believe you that those three sides of the triangle are true. But how? How can each of these things be true at the same time? My mind is struggling with this. Well, there's a couple of things to say. First of all, I want you to notice, this is not just a a straight-out paradox, right? We're not just talking about something that's obviously contradictory. If I was trying to tell you that there is one God, but there are also three gods, I think that would just be an out-and-out contradiction. Or if I said, look, there's one person, but there are also three persons, that would also sound like a contradiction. What we are saying is something slightly different. It is nuanced, and it's still hard, but we are saying there is one God, 
who exists as three persons. Now that is mind-bending, mind-stretching, no doubt about it. It might make your brain hurt. I understand that. I struggle to grasp it as well. Uh, But it's worth realizing that there are things even in this creation, right? even in this physical, physical world, that make our brains hurt and that are hard to grasp. I mean, if you're doing science here at university or if you have memories, hopefully positive memories, but perhaps they're nightmares, I'm not sure, of physics from your high school days, you might remember learning something about the nature of light. The nature of light as physicists and scientists have studied it, is that it sometimes behaves as though it's a wave, and sometimes it behaves as a particle. And you might think, well, which one is it? Because those things are quite different, a wave and a particle. Uh, But when you do the science and you look at the evidence, the answer is, well, it's kind of both. It seems to be both at the same time. And there's no easy way to explain how that is the case, but that is where the evidence points. Light behaves both as a wave and as a particle. And I just want to say that if there's something in this world which we find hard to grasp, is it really that amazing that the God who made this world is at least as complicated as that, if not more, right? That doesn't sound unreasonable to me. I mean, he is the God who said, let there be light. This light who is, that is both a wave and a particle. If he made something so complex, would he not be more complex? I think that's fair enough. We've seen the Bible's teaching. We've seen these three key truths around the triangle that the Bible clearly teaches and that we need to hold on to. My third point this evening is about heresies and cults. It's about heresies and cults because when men, when mankind, when human beings start tinkering with biblical Christianity and start remaking it in a way that makes more sense to them and and fudging it and distorting it, nearly always one of the first things to go is the doctrine of the Trinity. Up on the screen is this uh, meme I found online and I really like it. I think it's true. It says, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear simple and wrong. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? Uh, For every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple and wrong. And that is exactly where the cults and the heresies go. Uh, the, The idea of the Trinity and holding those three sides of the triangle together is too hard. And so they let one of the sides of that triangle go. As a result, they have a system which is much simpler to grasp. It's clear and it's simple and it's wrong. And so I want to give you an example of the three different ways that that can go. Imagine for a moment if we let go of the first side of our triangle, the one that says there is one God. If you let go of that idea that there is one God, then what are you left with? Well, you're left with three persons who are fully God and three persons who are distinct from one another. Now that you can hold in your brain, right? That's understandable. Uh, that will lead to a heresy or a false teaching called tritheism. Tritheism is the belief that there are three gods, not one. And an example of that in today would be uh, the Mormons, the uh, Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints is what they call themselves. And they believe that the Father is one God, that Jesus is a second God, that the Holy Spirit is a third God, And what's more, if you're a good Mormon and work hard and are good enough, you may become a God in time as well. 
Well, that's one example. What if we let go of a different side of the triangle? What if we let go of the idea that the three persons are each fully God? Well, if you let go of that side of the triangle, what you are left with is that there's one God and that the three persons are definitely distinct. That is easier to hold in your mind. Uh, what that means is that God, the Father, well, he, he's the true God, and these other persons, the Son and the Spirit, are distinct and less than him. Now, the name of this false teaching is called subordinationism, because the Son and the Spirit end up being subordinate. They end up being less than fully God. An example of this today would be the Jehovah's Witnesses, another a heretical movement that is spun off from Christianity. Uh, they say that the Father is God. Uh, they believe that the Son is less than God. He's like an angel or some kind of celestial being or maybe a God with a small g, but not a capital G. And for them, the Holy Spirit is not even a person. He's more like a, a force or a power. That's a second way you can go off track with the Trinity. The third way, if you let go of the third side of the triangle, you let go of the idea that the persons are distinct, well, what are you left with then? You're left with the understanding that there is one God and that each person is fully God, but they're no longer distinct from one another. This is the kind of Clark Kent Superman situation where there's one God and he just kind of puts on different outfits just kind of has a mask. So it's sometimes he appears as the Father. Maybe in the Old Testament times, God revealed himself as Father. But in New Testament times, he appeared as Jesus. And now in the age of the church, he appears as the Holy Spirit. But there's not really three different persons. It's kind of just the one God putting on different masks. That's why this false teaching is called modalism, because God is just expressing himself in different modes. Uh, an example today uh, of a heresy that goes that way might be the oneness Pentecostals, uh, or sometimes those uh, guys are called Jesus onlyism. Jesus onlyism because they believe really just dealing with Jesus the whole time, just different masks. Uh, I need to be careful and clear here. I'm not talking about all Pentecostals. Right, Most Pentecostals are absolutely our brothers and sisters in Christ. They believe in the Trinity. We're on the same team. But oneness Pentecostals and people like T.D. Jakes uh, do not believe in the Trinity. And I'm not convinced they're Christians. Even though you can go to a Christian bookstore like Kurong and look at their top 10 bestsellers and some of T.D. Jakes' books will be there, enormously popular, I'm not sure he's even saved because he doesn't believe in the Trinity. By letting go of any one side of that triangle, uh, these false groups, they, I guess the positive is they stop their brain hurting and they come up with a new idea about God that is clear and simple, but wrong. And we can't do that. We can't go there. The whole point of Christianity is that we know God, not just know things about God. I mean, we really get to know him. We have a relationship with him as he really is. And so we need to listen to what he says about himself. If he has revealed himself as one God with three persons, that, that's, that we need to take that. We need to accept that. That's the God we have a relationship with. Whew, well, you're doing very well. Uh, we're in our last part of the talk now. And I think for some of you, this is going to be the most helpful part of the talk. Uh, what I want to do now is change gears, and I want to come at the whole doctrine of the Trinity from a different angle, and perhaps a more helpful angle for some of you. Uh, because really, 
the Trinity is not a super complicated maths problem that you need to try and solve. And I'm really sorry if so far in the talk, that's what it sounded like. Uh, this is not like, huh, what's the square root of minus one? Go and work that out. No, that's, it's not a complicated maths problem. The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is a beautiful revelation about a wonderful God that should take our breath away and lead us to worship. It's a beautiful revelation about a wonderful God that should take our breath away and lead us to worship. Uh, and so I want you to kind of imagine this. Uh, imagine that for some reason, I don't know why, but imagine for some reason you have never seen a car before. Right? Maybe, I, maybe you've been in a coma your whole life until tonight. And after the talk, as I'm going home, you see me uh, go and get into my car. And just as I'm opening the door, you come up to me and you say, Dan, what is this beautiful thing? Because you've never seen a car before. What is it? And what does it do? I think there are two different ways that I could try and explain to you what a car is and what it does. Uh, the first way, I, I could pop the bonnet up. And I could bring you around and, and, and you let you look under the bonnet and I could talk to you about the engine and the pistons and the fuel pump and the fan belt and the radiator and the alternator and the carburetor. And if I knew how all those things work, I could try and tell you about the engineering and how this all goes together and what it does. And in a way, that's what I've been trying to do so far in tonight's talk. Uh, I've tried to pop the bonnet and show you the workings and show you why we believe God is a trinity. But there is a second way I could explain to you what a car does. I could say, you know what? Don't worry about that. Close the bonnet, jump in the passenger seat side. Uh, I'll jump in behind the wheel and I'll take you for a drive, right? And even if I can't explain exactly how all the inner workings under the bonnet work, I can still take you for a drive and you're going to sit there and go, wow, cars are great. This is amazing. And so that's what I want to do now in the last part of this talk. I mean this with utmost respect. Let's uh, jump in the Trinity and go for a spin. And I'm going to do that in three ways. Final point, our wonderful Trinity. Our wonderful Trinity. And the first of the three is this. The doctrine of the Trinity shows us that our God is unique. Truly, there is no one like our God. He's not a human being, right? It's not as though you get a human being and you pop them on the photocopier and you kind of make a few copies and you keep going enlarge, 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 enlarge. And that's, you know, what God's like, kind of like human, but bigger and better. No, our God is completely different to us. He's completely different to anything in the creation that he's made. There's nothing in this world that you can look around and you go, oh, that is also, yeah, Trinitarian. No, it's not. He is decidedly other. He is transcendent. He's different to us. And so there's no appropriate analogy of him. All the common analogies that we use of the Trinity all fall short. We can't really say, well, he's like the sun and the sun rays and the warmth that you feel on your skin from the sun. Uh, you can't say, well, it's like me. I, I'm the son of my parents, but I'm also a husband and I'm also a father. I'm one man with these three different roles. No, that's modalism. Uh, he's not like ice and water and steam. Our God is unique. And that's how it should be. That's beautiful, right? Our God is one of a kind. As he said in Isaiah, there is no one else like him. That's a good thing. So don't be embarrassed about this doctrine. It's a wonderful truth. Second thing I want to say is our God is love. 
Our God is love. You might be familiar with the verse from 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, where it says, God is love. What does that mean? Does it mean that God is loving? That he's kind, he's compassionate? Uh, Yeah, he certainly is those things, and it would certainly encompass that. Yes, he is a loving God, but it doesn't say God is loving. It says God is love. It's saying this is who God is. This is foundational to his his being. He is love. So let's put it a little deeper on this verse. Do you think that love is intrinsic to who God is? Do you think it's essential to his nature? I hope your answer is yes. I think that's what that verse is saying. But I want you to think about that for a moment. Before God created everything, right? Before Genesis chapter 1, who was there for God to love? I mean, how could he have a loving relationship with anyone if there was no one there for him to have a relationship with? Can you see that only a Trinitarian God can be defined by his love because Father, Son, Spirit have been loving one another from all eternity. And I actually think this is a catastrophic problem for every other worldview and religion. As an example, think about Islam. In Islam, their God, their their so-called God, is named Allah. And Allah is not the same God as in the Bible. Right? Sometimes people try and tell you that all the major world religions are basically teach the same thing and basically worship the same God. It's not true. Uh, Muslims know that they do not worship God as Trinity. Uh, they're quite clear on that, and we know that we do. We are aware that there are big differences between our faiths. Muslims don't believe in the Trinity. For them, Allah is not Trinitarian. Allah is just one, solitary, single, alone. What that means is that if Allah was true, and he did make all of this world, then you think about Allah before the moment of creation. Allah would have had no one to be in relationship with, would he? There would have been no one for him to love. For Allah, love and relationships would be an experiment. Something new to try, something that is not essential to his nature, something that is not the way he's always been. This would be an experiment. Let's create the world for the first time. Let's have something else that I could relate to. And we'll give this whole love and relationships thing a try. Love is not essential to Allah's character. It is not who he would be in eternity in himself. But the God of the Bible says God is love. And no other God can say that. Friends, never be embarrassed by this doctrine. It is a wonderful truth. Thirdly and finally, our God, our Trinitarian God, makes sense of the world we live in. Uh, As you know, I'm a staff worker with Focus, uh, the branch of our club that particularly tries to love and and care for and minister to international students. And one of the things I love about being at Focus is you get to see all these different cultural differences between the students and the different parts of the world. Uh, One example would be time. Right? Uh, the way time runs in the West and in Australia is very different to the way time runs, say, in Africa. I mean, you should see the run sheet for TNT tonight, right? It's all very detailed. Everyone knows exactly what they're doing and exactly how many minutes and how long it's all going to take. 
And that's how we do it, because we prioritize events over people. We want the event to run smoothly and everyone to know how long they're going to be here. But in other parts of the world, people are more important than events. And so if I need to meet you in an hour's time, but I'm in a really important discussion right now that's going to take two hours, well, you know, time's a bit flexible. I guess I'll be a bit late to meet you, but that's okay. You'll understand because you're operating the same worldview. Times like that, personal space between, say, Asians and the Latin Americans, quite different. But some things are true across every culture in the world. In my experience, talking to international students, if you ask people from anywhere in the world, what is the most important thing in life? You know, at the end of the day, what matters most? Everyone I've met says relationships. They talk about the people that they love. They talk about their relationships. They talk about their parents. They talk about the rest of their family. They talk about their friends. If they're religious, they may talk about their God. Relationships are the most important thing in the universe. No one on their deathbed says, you know what? I wish I'd spent more time at the office. No one says that. We think about our loved ones. They're the most important thing. And that consistency across cultures is a fascinating thing. I wonder how it could be explained. The hardcore naturalistic atheist may say, well, uh, you know, love and relationships are just an illusion. Uh, in reality, it's our selfish genes that are programmed to propagate themselves. We're hardwired to look for relationships and to find a mate so that we can pass our genes on. It's all an illusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no one really lives like that. We all believe that our loved ones are the most important thing. Now, sisters, brothers, can you see what explanatory power the doctrine of the Trinity has here? Christians have a fantastic explanation for why all humans everywhere are wired for relationships and want to love others and be loved in return. Why? It's because humans everywhere, no matter their religion, no matter their worldview, no matter their background, Humans everywhere were made in the image of a Trinitarian God. A God of loving relationships between Father and Son and Spirit. Each of us have, boom, been marked with that stamp. We've been pressed into that image. A God of love and relationships have made us in His image. And we are people who cherish, who seek after love and relationships. And we wither away when we can't find them. Friends, don't be embarrassed about this doctrine. It is a wonderful truth. Well, that's enough for tonight. Uh, we're going to go deeper on the Trinity in the next couple of weeks, but I hope already you're beginning to feel a little bit of a buzz and see why this, this is not just dry doctrine. This is not just a complicated maths problem to solve. This is a beautiful doctrine. I'm going to keep trying to convince you of that over the next two weeks, but I'm going to pray for us now. Uh, using the words of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Please pray with me. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.